This evening we are looking at the ninth commandment, our ninth session in our Lifesavers series. And the ninth commandment says, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And we find this in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 16. Now, the sixth commandment protected a person's life. You shall not kill. The seventh protects his marriage. You shall not commit adultery. The eighth protects his property. You shall not steal. And this ninth commandment protects his reputation. So this evening, our whole focus would be on the concern that we must have for one another's reputation. You shall not give false testimony. There's no full stop over there. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. So let's look at the meaning of this commandment. First of all, let's define what is a false witness. To bear false witness means to tell something which is not true, to sell something which is not true. Now, simple definition of something that is not true, we will say that is lying. Whereas this ninth commandment is addressing one specific facet of lying, and that is lying about other people. So this commandment is not just speaking about thou shall not lie, but it's speaking specifically about thou shall not lie about somebody else. And who is that somebody else? About your neighbor. So let's look at how does the Bible define a neighbor? Remember in John's Gospel, chapter 10 and verse 29, we read about the Good Samaritan. And in this story, Jesus made it very clear, who is our neighbor? The one whom we encounter who needs our help. And since everybody needs help of some kind or the other at some time or the other, technically, everyone whom we have contact with becomes our neighbor. So, don't tell anything wrong or false about any individual. That's what it basically means. We look at the implications of it. We'll first look at the Old Testament principles. Then we'll also look at the New Testament principles. We look at what Jesus spoke about it. We'll also look at some practical ways whereby individuals today can bear false witness and instead of being a true witness. And what does God really want us to do? He wants us to be his witnesses, definitely. Not a false witness, but a true witness. So this is going to be our broad outline of our study. So first of all, let's look at false witness in the Old Testament. If you notice, false witness started in the Garden of Eden. When Satan came and told Adam and Eve, did God really say? Now, that was a false witness, isn't it? He told a lie because Satan is the father of lies. And right from the very beginning, remember we said that false witness is Senna telling lies about somebody else. So here he was telling a lie about God. And did God really say that? And he put this thought into their minds. And once sin entered, into the world through this lying <laughs> scheme of Satan. We find soon other individuals down the line also began to lie about others, you know, false witness. Cain, if you notice, lied to God when God asked him, where is your brother? He said, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? 
Abraham lied about his wife, you know, passing her off as his sister. And Jacob definitely was a master of uh, lying and deceit and you know, tricking others. Joseph's brothers deceived their father Jacob. You know, I remember they brought that you know, coat dipped in blood and said, you know, we found this. Is this really belonging to your son? So if you notice, lying about others came about very, very quickly, one into the other. But we must also remember when this commandment is given, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Remember at that time in the Old Testament culture, especially for the Jews, these were not laws that were given by a government. These were laws that were given by God himself. And in that culture, in the Jewish culture, there was no question of jail system or police or anything like that. The courts you know, that were established were individuals who were appointed by God, and the law that was used was the Old Testament law. It was not a law that they wrote down. It was a law that was given by God. So in, in Israel, criminal cases, civil cases, as well as religious violation cases were all taken up by the same court. We are all taken up by the same court. And since there were no prisons, either one made restitution in some way for the crime that was committed or paid for the crime with his life or the loss of some member of his body. And this is how punishment was given. There was no question of a, a long drawn out court case happening and after that a guy being punished you know, for so many years. No, no. The, the pattern was God gave the law and if a person was found in fault, they were brought immediately before the leaders and the leaders took the decision based on the Old Testament law. So let's look at what the Old Testament law really said. Number one, truthful testimony is essential for a just trial. Truthful testimony is essential for a just trial. There were the laws that God had given. There were the judges whom God appointed. And there was also the need for witnesses who will either say, yes, this is true or this is not true. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 28 tells us a rascally witness <coughs> makes a mockery of justice, and the mouth of the wicked spreads iniquity. What do you mean by a rascally witness? A false witness. A false witness makes a mockery of justice. So it was important that you know, the person who stood up and said, we have found this person taken in fault. Remember, the people came to Jesus and said, we found this woman you know, taken in the act of adultery. Now, the, that was a true witness or a false witness. They found only the woman. What happened to the guy? That was not a truthful testimony. And as a result, the trial was not going to be just. They had already decided in their minds that this person should be stoned to death. That's why then Jesus turned the turn tables around and said, okay, you are condemning her. You know, if you have any fault in yourself first, and, or if you have no fault in yourself, then you cast the first stone. So truthful testimony was definitely essential for a just trial. Secondly, just trials are essential for righteousness to prevail in any nation. Especially for the children of Israel, God wanted the people of Israel to stand apart, to be separate from the others. 
so that the people who are surrounding them would know that God is their father in terms of a covenant relationship with them. So the relationship of God being a just God and a righteous God had to be shown to the people around. So just trials were definitely important. So if a nation had to be in a righteous, then there was definitely the need for the right type of justice, truthful testimony, no false testimonies whatsoever. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 9 tells us, with his mouth, the godless man destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. False testimony, destruction. True testimony, that is definitely deliverance and justice. Okay, So, in the case of the nation of Israel, it was not just enough for the people of God to have just laws. The laws alone were not sufficient. God intended his people to be holy individuals, sanctified and set apart, so that the people around could recognize who God is. So if there was no justice, people did anything that they wanted to, then you will find the rest of the people will say there's no difference between them. So this is why in the period of the judges, if you notice the scripture tells us, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There was chaos. This is why God punished them. And then God set up judges so that they would get back onto the right track so that there will be righteousness in the land. Thirdly, false testimony is a barrier between man and God which hinders his worship, which hinders his worship. In other words, there's a linkage between what we are saying with our lips and our worship of God. And this comes across very clearly in Psalm 15 where it says, O Lord, who may abide in thy tent? Who may dwell on thy holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness, speaks truth in his heart, does not slander with his tongue, does not do evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own heart and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. You notice the psalmist starts off over here and says, who can really worship God and have fellowship with him? And immediately, the words that are used over there is in a, a person whose spoken word is correct. A person who speaks truth with his heart does not do any slander against his neighbor, does not do any evil against his neighbor. In other words, there's a very close combination, as James would put across, how can we have blessing and cursing come together? How can a person bear false witness against his neighbor and come before God and worship him? It is not possible. There's definitely going to be something wrong somewhere. We cannot put two and two together and think we can definitely worship God. That is why the Lord was upset with them. So many times he told them, look at this is what I desire. I desire truth in the inward parts. I desire justice you know, and holiness. But look what you are doing. All your sacrifices are only external. You think you can live the way you want to and still worship me. It is not possible. False testimony is a barrier between man and God. Fourthly, false testimony is a violation of the rights of the falsely accused, which can do great harm, which can do 
great harm. Proverbs 25 and verse 18 tells us, like a club and a sword and a sharp arrow is a man who bears false witness against his neighbor. Look at the analogies that are used here. A club, a sword, and a sharp arrow. All these three things, you know, destroy an individual, break up an individual, break up his reputation. False testimony can not only ruin a man's reputation, it may even cost him his life. Maybe the classic example of this false witness you find in 1 Kings chapter 21, where Ahab and Jezebel obtained the property of Nabal by means of a false testimony. And as a result, because of that false testimony, he was even executed or murdered. So false testimony has all these repercussions. And as a result, the Old Testament says, hey guys, be careful about it. You, know? you think you can get away with it? No, you're going to be punished for it. You think you can get away with it and still come and worship God? No, it's not going to be possible. You think the land will survive and do great because of your false witness? No, the land is also going to be punished. What is really required is that you must stand firm for a truthful testimony. Also, let some do some clarification of this commandment from the books of the law, which is called as the Pentateuch, the first five books, the books of the law. You know, what does this, these books speak about this particular commandment? Any clarification that is given in these laws? Number one, the law clarifies what false witness includes, what false witness includes. What are the things that are included? First of all is slander. In, Reve in Leviticus chapter six, 19 and verse 16, it says, do not go about spreading slander among your people. That's false witness. Okay? You're not standing in a court of law to give a false witness, but you're spreading slander. You know, wrong things about an individual to other people around. That is slandering that individual's reputation, bringing that person's reputation down. The scripture in the Old Testament law says that is false witness. Exodus 23 and verse 1 tells us, do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Two aspects over here. False reports, okay? You are falsifying the report about that individual so that that person can go free. Here's a guilty person, okay? And you're coming around and saying a false report and saying, hey, no, no, this guy's a very good guy. You know, he would never do such a thing. That is a false witness. And these are some examples that the Old Testament gives us about what a false witness is all about. So false witnesses would be an accomplice to the crime. They may not themselves have done that wrong, but if you're standing by in support of them, that is definitely wrong. Secondly, the law identifies evil causes of false witness, evil causes of false witness. Why do people give these false witness? One of the reasons would be prejudice, prejudice. Maybe they are prejudiced about the other individuals. Maybe because they are poor, they think these guys are rich so they can you know, get away with giving a false report because they are rich and powerful. Others may think, you know, hey, the society is putting this pressure on me. Or there's an element of the peer pressure. Your friends are putting that pressure around you. Say, hey, look here, if you don't stand you know, 
and speak on my behalf. You are no longer my friend. And as a result, the pressure to conform so that you can be still friends with that individual. Maybe one individual or maybe a majority. Maybe you may be the only guy who is standing and saying, no, no, that guy you know, did not do it. Where the rest of the guys are saying, no, no, we saw him do it. But you have not seen him doing it. And as a result, if we also stand firm and say, no, 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 I want to be friends with these guys. I don't want to be the minority. So I will go with the crowd. That is also a false witness. This is what you find in Exodus chapter 23 and verse 2. Exodus chapter 23 and verse 2, which says, Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. Exodus very clearly tells us, don't give with the crowd in our, uh, thinking. Don't say, because everybody said it, so I also agree. No, that is a false witness. If you have to get, agree on something, you have to definitely check it out. Now, this again in our technological world, we have so many forwards, forwarded many times. And if you ask that person, did you check it out before you forwarded it? That guy may not even have read it. You know, you're just forwarding things many times. That will also come under false witness, isn't it? Be careful just about forwards that you said, which sent, which you have not verified. If you have not verified something, that will be a false witness. Number three, the law prescribes safeguards against false witness, against false witness. So in this scenario where people want to get their own way, you know, and they come up with these individuals to support them. Now, were there some built-in uh, uh, system in the system whereby a person can be uh, sort of prevented and uh, given true justice, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 6 and 7, this is what it says. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death. But no one is to be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting that person to death, and then the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from among you. So the law gave a warning against false witness. And this was the preventive measures that were given. In other words, they couldn't just bring up one guy and say, okay, he's saying I saw him do it. No, no. There had to be at least two or three witnesses. Now, it is still possible that two or three witnesses can also be bribed to say it. But this was a built-in safeguard so that no one person could say it. It had to be at least two or three individuals. And this was God's concern that individuals will stand for the truth. But as sin increased and increased, we are living in an age today where you can get a whole lot of people to tell the false thing and people will stand up and say, yes, this is you know, definitely true, even though it is false. You know? But the Old Testament law, remember we are looking at it from the Jewish perspective, the Old Testament law, when they were moving from place to place, you know, this is a system that was built in that no one person can come and say, oh, you know, he did this. He had to be corroborated. He had, it had to be you know, put together. It had to be substantiated by at least two or three witnesses. Number four, <coughs> the law had to be carefully scrutinized and investigated. Number four, the law holds the individual Israelite responsible for leading and initiating charges against 
a law breaker. When any Israelite gained knowledge of a violation of the law, it was the person's duty to initiate the corrective process, to initiate the corrective process. That is why the individual who brought that case, they had to cast the first stone. So the purpose of the law was not to punish the individuals. The purpose of the law was so that there were uh, situations would change. There will be a correction in the lives and the minds of the Israelites. Number five, the testimony which is to be carefully scrutinized and investigated must include prophetic revelations. Prophetic revelations. In Second Chronicles you know, chapter 24 and verse 19, God spoke to the Israelites bearing testimony against them through the prophets. And when the prophets spoke, they spoke for God. And when they spoke, it was God speaking, bearing witness to the people. And this was the verses. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. Though they testified against them, they would not listen. God sent these prophetic kind of, uh, individuals who would go and tell those uh, the children of Israel, Hey, look here, this is what you have done wrong. This is what you have done wrong. So the uh, information or the message received from the Lord through the prophets had to be carefully scrutinized and investigated. Why? Because there were also people who claimed to be prophets, who claimed to have revelations from God, but they were not genuine prophets. They were false prophets. So as a result, if a person came up and said, I'm a prophet, this is what God spoke to me, that guy has done wrong, he has to be punished. They said, no, no, let's wait a while. Let's check up whether your prophecy or your information is correct or wrong. In Malachi chapter 3 and verse 5, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 5, it says, it reads, Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, and against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien, and do not fear me. So individuals who said one thing, did another thing, their lifestyle was different. The scripture is telling us, hey, better scrutinize and investigate. Even though, even though their messages may start by saying, thus saith the Lord, the scripture is very clear, we need to check it out. We need to check it out. So even in today's world, when there are plenty of people who claim that God said this and God said that, you know, the clarification of this commandment would also lead us to make sure that we verify these things. This is true. If it is true, follow. If it is not true, don't accept it. Fifthly, let's look at false witness in the New Testament or true witness in the New Testament. True witness in the New Testament. Number one, Jesus is the faithful and true witness. Jesus is the faithful and true witness. And Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, he is referred to as the faithful and true witness. And the book of Hebrews in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it, says, it reads, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in so many portions and in so many ways, in these last days has spoken to us, whom he, uh, to his, uh, spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the 
world. So the scripture is saying earlier God spoke, God bore, God bore witness through the prophets. Now in these last days, the total manifestation, the total understanding, the total witness of who God is, has been revealed to us in Jesus. He indeed is the faithful and true witness. And just as much as the prophets of old came to bear witness of the truth, Jesus was different from them in certain ways, in ways whereby he could say, not just I'm showing you the truth, uh, but in John 14, 6, where he says, I am indeed the truth. I am indeed the truth. So he not only came to bear witness to the truth, he was the truth himself. He was the truth himself. Number two, Jesus taught that truthfulness should be habitual and that oaths ought not to be necessary for those who give testimony. Matthew chapter 5 verses 33 to 37 says, Again you have heard the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be, yes, yes, or no, no, and anything beyond these is of evil. Very clear. Hey, guys, you know, don't go and make oaths and say, you know, I believe this is true. And if you notice in today's world, a lot of people use that phrase, isn't it? You know, they are telling a lie, but they are saying, no, God promised. Or some people may say, mother promised. They are adding other things as if they are taking an oath on God, taking an oath on their parents and saying, oh, I'm saying this is true, when in reality they are really lying to their teeth. Jesus is saying, hey, be careful. Now, that's not the right thing for a believer whatsoever. Just his word alone is sufficient. Nothing needs to be added up on that just to say, look here, this is the truth. A person should be known by their words to say, this guy always tells the truth. Now remember, if you are constantly telling lies, constantly you know, falsifying you know, statements and information, there would definitely be a time where people will look around you and say, this guy never tells the truth, never tells the truth. And they would lose their, their trust in you. But a person who always tells the truth, there's no element of false witness. He or she is always a true witness. People would know this guy would never tell something false. We can depend on him. He's a trustworthy person. Number three, Jesus directly applied the Old Testament teachings on giving testimony to the maintenance of purity in the church, the maintenance of purity in the church. Old Testament law said two or three witnesses must be there to prove anything. And Jesus directly took that Old Testament teachings and applied it in the church discipline setup. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 16, he says, If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Here's a person who's done something wrong. You know it's something wrong, and you go and confront that individual individually, that person individually. He says, No, 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 I don't believe it. You know, you are wrong, I am right. The scripture then says, Okay. Don't leave it at that. You know, take two or three more witnesses 
who will be able to help him to understand, hey, what you are telling is wrong. What this individual is telling is right, because we have also seen what you have done is wrong. So that a person does not go scot-free with his falsehood and think, oh, I have fooled people. And a lot of people who do that, isn't it? They think they have told a lie and they have fooled people because they got away with one person. Now they think that they can fool one individual plenty of times because he's easy to fool and they get away with it. No, the scriptural principle is don't leave it with one. Take two or three people who would help you. And still, if he doesn't do it, church discipline patterns also come into place. Number four, those who rejected the witness of our Lord sought to do away with him by their own false testimony. Now, the Old Testament law is very clear. Two or three witnesses had to come forward. Now, the upholders of the law in New Testament times were the chief priests and the Pharisees and the whole council. What did they do? They could not find any fault in Jesus. Jesus you know, was a sinless individual, isn't it? So, they decided to bring about a false testimony against Jesus in order that they might put him to death. And the scripture tells us they did not find it. You know, even though many false witnesses came forward, many false witnesses came forward, but it did not hold any weight. Finally, they latched on to two people who came forward and said, now this man stated, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And then immediately the high priest stood up and said, do you not make any answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? They just twisted and turned. Obviously, Jesus was not talking about the physical temple, but he was taking, speaking about his body, which he will die and rise again after three days. But they could not find any false witness who will say something that will hold weight. And as a result, they just had to latch on to this. So here were the people who were supposed to be the upholders of the law. They were twisting and turning and making sure that the false witnesses that they were bringing about you know, would in some way, would in some way, in some interpretation you know, in their own minds would be used to kill Jesus. And that is a sad part of it. Okay? Israel's judicial system was at its worst at this particular judgment of Jesus because they condemned the one who gave them the Old Testament law. The judges were corrupt. They were definitely personally prejudiced. The witnesses were false and the law was totally ignored. And that was the greatest tragedy of the uh, Jewish judicial system at this time when they were willing to crucify Jesus, one who had done no wrong by bringing false witnesses. Fifthly, Jesus' final command to his disciples was to be his witnesses. He did not say go around bearing false witness. He says go around being a true witness. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 tells us, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. What do you mean by witnesses? It's an eyewitness. What you have seen and heard and testified, as John would put across, you know, that which we have seen, which we have handled with our hands, which we have seen with our eyes, you know, we are communicating this to you. So God is saying we are first-hand witnesses. What God has done in your life, go and share it with people. And it says in all Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. 
And that's the testimony that God wants us to share. Don't share false witness about people, but rather what you share to the people around you, the genuine witness of who God is and what he has done in your life. Be his witnesses. The apostles also taught that those who would give witness to their faith will suffer persecution for doing so. Jesus spoke about it. Disciples also spoke about it. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 to 12, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely, falsely, on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Apostle Paul also warned that to proclaim as the gospel something which is not true is to be a false witness. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 15. It says, Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. So what Paul is saying here, hey, we have been preaching about the resurrection. If that is not true, then we are false witnesses. We are saying we saw it. If it is not true, we are false witnesses. He says, no, we should not be like that. He's saying rather we are saying that we have seen it and we are testifying and this is indeed the true witness. If the resurrection did not happen and we are sharing that it happened, then there's a false witness. But if we know that it happened and we are sharing that it did happen, then it is a true witness. And that's the message that God gives to us. Make sure that we are genuine witnesses of what we have seen and heard. Let us not be false witnesses of the gospel. Remember today there's a lot of false gospels that is going around. Gospel that says that if you believe in Jesus, you won't fall sick at all. If you believe in Jesus, you'll get a lot of money. No, that's not true. If a person preaches like that, then he or she is a false witness according to this truth. Now let's look at some principles governing matters of false witness. Principles governing matters of false witness. Number one, false testimony is a very strong temptation and a very pernicious evil in our society. Giving a false testimony is a way for one person to do great harm to another. And yet seem, he's totally innocent. Yet seem as if he's very pious in doing so. Okay, And this is why we must be very, very careful. Think for a moment. The individuals who are the scribes and the Pharisees, they thought they were very, very pious people, isn't it? And when they tried the Lord Jesus and found him worthy of death, they thought they were doing actually a good job. They were really, you know, helping society. Now, that is what a false testimony is. It's a strong temptation to do evil. It's a strong testimony and it's a, it's a strong temptation to do harm to the other person and still appear very religious, appear very spiritual. I am right. That guy is wrong. Look what I have done to him. But you didn't tell the truth. You actually falsified a particular thing just so that you will get your way and that person would be punished. It's an evil mindset. It's an evil mindset. And sad to say, 
both in the non-Christian world and in the Christian world, people who are appearing very religious sometimes can go to great lengths to falsify things just so that the other person can be punished and they appear as if they are very right. Secondly, there is the principle of the priority of witnessing, the principle of the priority of witnessing. Jesus gave us this command, go ahead and be the, be my witnesses. He didn't say do witnessing, he says be my witnesses. Let your lifestyle be truthful. Let people look at you and say, here's a person who stands for the truth. Here's a person who would never lie. That is what witnessing is all about. So when we finally then share about Jesus is the only way, they would be willing to accept that. But if we have been telling them lies all along and then we go and tell them Jesus is the only way, they say, hey, you're lying. All the other things are also you're doing is lying. This is also one of your lies. But if on the other hand, our lifestyle has been witnessing, our lifestyle is a lifestyle of integrity, of truthfulness. When we share the gospel with them, they say, this is what Jesus has done for me. They will accept it as genuine. Thirdly, the principle of plurality in witness. The principle of plurality in witness. You know, it is important that not one person's testimony is, is taken as the right thing in order to punish the other person. It is not uncommon to have one Christian try to straighten out another Christian. And that's how churches split today. When one individual wants to get even with the other person you know, and says, I want to straighten this guy out. He has done this particular wrong he, or he has done this wrong to me. I will show him. Yes, maybe you would, the person will say, he raked up this dirt against me, I will rake up this dirt against him. And as a result, there's a war that is going on and more and more you know, uh, dirt is thrown around. And the world is looking at that and saying, hey, what a witness is that? Is that a witness? No, no. We must be careful. If there are things like that happening, stop it right in the initial stage before it becomes worse and make sure that in, first of all, it's a one-on-one. -on -one. Then it is taking the people and a couple of witnesses together to address the issue. And still, if that person does not respond, the scriptural injunction is you know, send him out of the church. Thirdly, uh, fourthly, the principle of purity in our witness. The principle of purity in our witness. Righteousness and justice cannot be preserved and promoted by deception and falsehood, by deception and falsehood. In other words, when we share the gospel, what are we sharing with them? If we are sharing, if you come to Jesus, all your problems will be solved. We will have a very comfortable life. Jesus will give you this, that, and the other. That's not a true witness. There's a false witness, isn't it? Because the Bible very clearly tells us, if you come to me, then you are going to have more troubles. If, on the other hand, we are also promising them the health wealth gospel and saying, hey, this is the witness I'm sharing with you. That is also a false witness. The scripture tells us the son of man even did not even have a place to lay and, and had to keep under his head to fall asleep. He didn't have a place of his own. And if you're propagating that the message that Jesus has given to us is a message like a marketing style that we do and say, if we do this, you'll get this, you know. If you are sharing the gospel in a marketing style manner, that is not 
a true witness because you understand if you have been in the marketing industry, you'll find that they are kind of falsifying a lot of things, you know, just so that they get people to buy that particular product. Don't falsify your witness. Make sure that we are, what you're telling them, what you're sharing them about who Jesus is, is the genuine thing. Don't soft pedal it. Don't rose coat it and say everything will be fine with you. No, no, the principle of purity in our witness is important. Fifthly, the love of justice, the love of justice is a purifying force, is a purifying force. Both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, godly men and women have longed for the day when the Messiah would come to earth and establish his righteous rule, where justice will finally and fully come to the earth. Till then, justice here on earth is definitely going to be imperfect. So when we are living in this world, if we really love justice, then we are looking forward for his coming. Because we know that we are not going to get justice here, here on earth. The courts of the law may not be a just court. The judges who are ruling may not be a just judges. The church's leadership may not be judging you correctly. You know? Justice would not necessarily be that totally here on earth. But if we really love justice, instead of fighting for it here and saying, I want it, you know, look forward for the day wherein there would be peace and justice. So those who look for, have a love for justice, will look forward for his coming. Sixthly, the justice and righteousness which God requires of his people must be preserved and promoted by the practice of church discipline. All about his brother Abel, am I my brother's keeper? In the church today, are you your brother's keeper? Definitely, we have a responsibility, isn't it? You know? We must initiate and carry through a corrective process. The scripture is very clear. When you see somebody who is taken up and fall, you are spiritual, go and correct that person gently, one-on-one. -on -one. And then if he doesn't listen, couple of witnesses together. And still, if he doesn't listen, the practice of church discipline says, excommunicate him. Why do you do that step? We don't jump to that in our last step. We go through the process because we want that person to be corrected, because we love justice and righteousness. We want the people of God to be different because if there's no correction, there's complacency. And then what will happen? The church you know, is in the world, but there's a lot more of the world in the church. And the people of the world say, in what way are we different? They are also doing the same thing that we are doing. So this is why the importance of church discipline. Sad to say again, a lot of churches today don't have church discipline patterns. Or even if they do have from a structural angle, it's such a long drawn out process like the court of law, you find that it never really happens. But we must make sure that the practice of church discipline, as it is mentioned in the scriptures, would be followed. Number seven, false witness includes many of the little sins which are so prevalent among Christians in the church today. Now, a person may say, oh, I'm not really a false witness going and you know, uh, talking about somebody else in a court of law. But remember, gossip, slanderous gossip, you know, and especially when we do it in a Christian manner and say, I'm sharing this prayer request about this person, you know, who's going through this particular problem so that you and I can pray intelligently about this person. 
What are you really doing? You have not asked that person, can I share this request of yours? No, no. You're only gossiping. So we need to be careful that that is also false witness. If you are sharing about yourself and your needs, you are sharing your needs. But don't share somebody else's problem without asking them permission whether you can share that which, have, which they have shared with you in all confidence. Because that will become as giving a false witness. That is gossip. Okay? So let's look at some contemporary ways of breaking this commandment. Definitely, the first one will be in the court of law. When you take an oath and say, that which I am saying is nothing, it's the truth and nothing but the truth, you know, so help me God, you make that commitment and vow. And then, through that same lips, you know, you give a false testimony. That is definitely what is happening in a lot of places today, you know, but that is wrong. The scripture says, no, if you are there in the court of law, first of all, you should not be there, but if you are there in the court of law, and you're standing as a witness, you have to tell the truth. You know? Don't you know, mix up, don't falsify your witness. Now, in what ways can we falsify? Couple of things. It can be broken, not just in the court of law, but in other ways as well. Number one, when it's a flat out lie, when it is a flat out lie, okay? To tell a lie with a straight face, that's a flat out lie, okay? You tell a lie with a straight face. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 22 tells us, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Are an abomination to the Lord. So people who lie with a straight face, people of the world will say, hey, such a successful guy, he got away with it. But in the eyes of God, it grieves the Lord. It arouses his anger. The Bible is telling us here that it's an abomination to the Lord. And Proverbs 19.9 says, a false witness shall not be go unpunished. He that speaketh lies shall perish, shall perish. So God takes you know, this very seriously. A person may think I've got away with it, but God has been watching and God says I take it seriously. Secondly, indirect lying, indirect lying. False witness may also take forms other than direct lying. We can slander by relating information which is technically correct, but relating it so as to give a false impression. You know, technically correct, but false impression. It's like maybe a sailor who is responsible for making daily entries in the ship's log, you know, log book. He gets angry with a person in charge, you know, and then when he has to write in the log book, you know, what does he write? He writes and says, you know, this leader, you know, was sober today. Now, that's the truth. Now, but what's the impression that you're creating? Other days he was not sober, but today he was sober. Now, just because you want to get even with him. That's indirect lying. You are technically correct. Oh, the guy was sober today. But the impression that you're giving is all the other days he was not sober. That is called as indirect lying. That's a false witness. Thirdly, Lying by silence. Lying by silence. Now, now we say, no, I don't want to bear false witness. I'll just keep quiet. No, we can also bear false witness by silence. When we hear somebody being falsely maligned and we fail to speak up and defend that person's reputation, our silence amounts to giving consent. Our silence amounts to giving consent. 
Yes, sometimes silence is golden, but there are other times when silence is not the golden thing. It is downright dirty. So, said anything with my mouth, but just by the fact that you did not say anything is definitely part of being a false witness because you're giving the impression that you have agreed with what all the other guys have said. Fourthly, gossip. One of the most common ways that we bear false witness is by means of gossip. Passing on information which is negative and which we don't know for certain to be accurate. So far as that goes, even if we do know it is to be accurate, it doesn't mean that it is right for us to pass it on. Two important aspects over there about gossip. Here you have some material that you have known about somebody, which is the truth. Now, you don't pass it on, okay? That is also gossip, okay? You know it is to be true, but you don't pass it on. You shouldn't be passing it on. On the other hand, you are passing on information which you have not verified, you know, to others. That is also considered as gossip, <laughs> okay? This is why in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 16, Leviticus 19, 16, the Lord says, Thou shalt not go up and down as a tail-bearer among thy people. You shall not be a tail-bearer. 1 Timothy 5.13 warns against being idle and wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also and busybodies, speaking things which they ought not, speaking things which they ought not. You know, you may not be able to travel from one place to the other as easily because of all the pandemic, but Today we have access to technology, isn't it? Give a phone call, send an email message, and today just by <coughs> sending a message, multiple people spoil the reputation of countless people. Be careful, don't gossip. <coughs> Jerry Wines reminds us, what you enjoy hearing will inevitably come to you. What you enjoy hearing, it will inevitably come to you. It does not compliment you that people feel free to share their gossip with you. Let me remind you that those who gossip to you will gossip about you. Those who gossip to you will gossip about you. So if you have that eager ear to say, hey, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more, be careful because they will share the same thing about you to others. Whereas on the other hand, if when they, tell, when they come and share gossip with you and you stop them and say, look, I don't want to hear anything from you. I don't want to hear anything which you have not verified. And even if you have verified, I don't want to hear anything wrong about this person. If you stop them in their tracks, then you will find that they will respect your belief. <coughs> the story is told of a gossip monger, a gossip monger who was convicted of his sin when he learned that the man he had lied about was dying. So this liar went to the dying man he had slandered and asked his forgiveness. The victim said, I do forgive you, but I want you to do something. I'd like for you to cut open this feather pillow, go to the window and dump all those feathers out of the window onto the street. The man was puzzled, but he did so. And when he had finished, his victim said, Now I would like for you to go and gather up all those feathers. The man replied, Why, that's impossible. The wind has blown those feathers everywhere. 
there's no way I could ever retreat all of them, retrieve all of them. And the dying man said, you're right. And in like manner, it is impossible to undo the hurt you have done to me with your gossip. I do forgive you, but my reputation has been irreparably damaged. And there's the danger of gossip. There's the danger of a false report. You may think you have got away with it, but look at the damage that you have caused to your neighbor, how you have you know, brought down his reputation. What are some other practical ways then that we can reform to obey this commandment? Number one, get right with God. Get right with God. Warren Wearsby tells the story about how one day when he was looking at the theology section of a bookstore, he saw on the book shelves a book on interior decorating. At first, he wanted to call the person who was in charge and tell the person that the book was in the wrong section. But the more he thought about it, the more he decided that it was in the right place after all. Because that's what God wants to do in our lives. He wants us to be renovated inside, to do interior decoration inside. The writer in Psalm 51 and verse 6, it tells us, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. So this evening, if God has spoken to us and said, Hey, look here, you have been very casual about this false witness. You have been lying through your teeth and you think people in a have and uh, not observed this or you have got away with it and you are a very successful person. The Lord is saying, no, God is looking at the inner man, truth in the inward parts, get right with God. Secondly, grow in childlikeness, in Christ-likeness. Grow in Christ-likeness. We have started out the Christian life, but we need to continue to grow. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 reminds us that God has come into our lives so that we can be conformed in the likeness of the image of his son. That's the purpose. That's the purpose. And Jesus never lied, isn't it? So if we want to become like Jesus, if that is our goal, then we must work towards that, grow to become like Christ. Tell the Lord, Lord, this is a problem in my area. I want you to help me. Change my heart. Change my thinking. Help me to tell the truth at all times. Thirdly, pray daily. Pray daily. Psalm 141 and verse 3. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. Set a watch. And that's a practical thing. If lying, telling something wrong about a person, or even right about a person, gossiping to others has become your natural pastime as it were, tell the Lord, Lord, put a lock over my lips. Make sure that I don't open my mouth. Make sure that I only tell the truth. Shall we do that? Read God's word. Read God's word. The scripture tells us in John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Thy word is truth. And in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 3, Peter writing says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if so be have tasted that the Lord is gracious. As we read God's word, which is the truth, truth statements is hitting into our minds. And as a result, that is what will control us. If you are not reading God's word, we do a natural thing. Natural thing may be to lie and get away with it. 
But when we feed on God's word and God's word becomes a part of our lives, then it is God's word in us which will decide every statement that you will make. And finally, number five, love others. Love others. Determine in your heart by the help of God that you will definitely work being a true witness to your neighbor. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 10 says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. He that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Lord, help me to love my neighbor. If you love somebody else, you're not going to make, you know, you're not going to say something false about that person. You're not going to spread gossip about that person, but you want to tell the truth about that person. Let me close with this illustration of, that Max Lucado mentions. He tells of a time when his daughter Jenna was a toddler, and he took her to play in a nearby park. And as she was playing in the sand, an ice cream salesman came along. Max Lucado bought her an ice cream cone. But when he turned to give it to her, he found that her mouth was full of the sand. Where I intended to put a delicacy, she had put dirt. Did I love her with dirt in her mouth? Absolutely. Was she any less my daughter with dirt in her mouth? Of course not. Was I going to allow her to keep the dirt in her mouth? No way. I loved her right where she was, but I refused to leave her there. I carried her over to the water fountain and washed out her mouth. Why did I do this? Because I love her. It goes on to make this point that God does the same for us. He holds us over the fountain of his grace and forgiveness and says, spit out the dirt. I've got something better for you. Then he cleanses us of our sins, including the sin of bearing false witness. So if this is your case, even this evening, would you be willing to come before the Lord, ask him for that forgiveness, ask him for that fountain of grace and you know, mercy that flows freely from the cross. Ask him to cleanse you. Ask him to give you his strength to put a lock on your lips so that you will tell the truth and nothing but the truth at all times. Let's bow our heads in prayer together.